Good afternoon. Uh, my name is uh, Larry Korb, and I'd like to welcome uh, you to this uh, session on our uh, study about how to re redeploy from Iraq quickly and safely. And I'd li also like to welcome all of you who are watching on uh, C-SPAN. We appreciate the coverage. Uh, I, on behalf of uh, John Podesta, our president, and Rudy D. Leon, who's the vice president for national security affairs, we want to have this discussion about how to uh, redeploy from Iraq quickly and safely. I'd like to thank my uh, two co-authors on this uh, study, Sean Duggan and Peter Jewell, for helping uh, get this done and get it done uh, in such a, 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 time a timely manner. Before we start, please turn off your cell phones, Blackberries, and all of those uh, type, of, uh, type, of, type of things. All right, what we're going to do here today, I'm going to spend a couple of minutes summarizing our, our report, and then I'm going to ask Colonel Harms and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Noggle to, uh, to comment on anything they'd like in, in the report or anything they feel is relevant to the discussion uh, about uh, Iraq. Then we'll have a short discussion up here, and then we'll turn the uh, session over to you for questions from the, uh, from, from the audience. Hi. Now, let me start by saying that the subject of a withdrawal date <clears throat> has become very, very critical uh, all of a sudden because with the new Status of Forces Agreement, the Iraqis are uh, asking to uh, set a timeline for the United States to withdraw. According to press reports, uh, the original position of the Iraqis was that we should withdraw in 12 months. They're talking about uh, now maybe <clears throat> uh, uh, longer than that uh, during uh, the visit of the congress last congressional delegation. Uh, Prime Minister Maliki talked about uh, uh, six 16 months. Now, since uh, uh, for the last three years, we at the center have been arguing that it's time to start a strategic redeployment uh, from Iraq. My co-author, Brian Katulis, and I first put our first report back in September uh, 2005. People raised two questions about it. Was it timely? And the other is, could you do it in a, in a reasonable, uh, uh, reasonable manner in, in a short period of time? So let me spend a few seconds talking about both of those. One, would it be good for our security? And number two, can it be done uh, 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 quickly and safely? Now, in our report, we argue that it can be done in eight to ten months quickly and safely. A year ago, when you had about 30,000 more troops there, we argued that it could be done in 10 to uh, 12 months. But let me spend a few seconds uh, addressing the question of what, uh, is it a good thing to do at the present time. In fact, we would argue now more than ever it's important to set a date because this is the one thing that all of the factions in Iraq agree on and we need to bring them together. We also feel that uh, by setting a specific date to get out, you will motivate the government in Iraq to do what they need to do to bring about meaningful reconciliation. A lot of people have argued that if you set a date to get out now, you will undermine the gains that have occurred uh, in the uh, last year, year, year and a half. In our view, it's exactly the opposite. If you don't set a deadline, you will, in fact, undermine those gains because if the sons of Iraq or the people who've been part of this uh, awakening uh, movement uh, that started in Al-Anbar province think that the United States will be there indefinitely, 
they will no longer cooperate with us. In fact, as we point out in the report, and we've got quotations from a Marine general up there saying it was really after the 2006 election when it became clear the United States would not be there forever that this awakening movement uh, took off. Similarly, you've probably seen the reports that uh, Muqtada al-Sadr has said as long as there's a date for the Americans to get out, he will uh, keep uh, laying his arms down. Similarly, uh, if when you set a withdrawal date, it's going to give you much more leverage with the countries in the region to work together to ensure that Iraq does not become uh, a, failed, a failed state. Now, let me spend a couple of seconds uh, before I turn it over to our panelists talking about uh, how to get out. Now, if you've been following the news, uh, Martha Raddatz, who's made innumerable trips to Iraq, on her last visit there, quoted uh, two high-ranking officials who said, no, you couldn't get out in, you know, 16 months, uh, 24 months. It just uh, can't, uh, can't, can't be done. Well, we disagree. Uh, if you look at the arguments for people who say you can't get out in a comparatively short period of time, there's a couple of motivations there. One, they don't want to get out. They really want to stay, so they argue that it can't be done. The other is that they talk about the fact that there's not enough seaports in Kuwait to get the material out. Our feeling is once you get to Kuwait, then you can worry about it. You will be, uh, you'll be out of Iraq. And they also want us to take out every piece of equipment that you have. I mean, even including the port johns And again, our feeling is that you should take out the vital equipment. Now, how can you do it? Well, you can begin by not replacing the units as their uh, 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 12 months or 15 months expires. You can take the troops out of the most stable areas. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn it over. We have a video here. If Alex can come up and uh, help me uh, help me do this thing, uh, that will show you exactly uh, you know how to uh, you know how to, how to how to do that. But while we're while we're getting ready, let me point out one thing: when people talk about the the problems in logistics, remember that in the spring of 2004, we put in and out 235,000 troops and their equipment. So, Alex, if you would. The first American units to withdraw would be the two regimental combat teams of the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force currently deployed in Anbar Province. Next, Army units will be gradually withdrawn from Baghdad and its southern belts at a rate of two brigades per month. One brigade, the 1st Brigade of the 4th Infantry Division, will shift up to Diyala in order to allow the 2nd Striker Cavalry Regiment to withdraw when its 15-month tour is complete in January 2009. Once the brigades in and around Baghdad are withdrawn, the brigades in northern Iraq, where the last remnants of extremist groups like Al-Qaeda in Iraq are located, will also be gradually withdrawn. Once the last brigade from northern Iraq has departed, the final American Combat Brigade the 4th Brigade of the 1st Cavalry Division, currently performing route security duties, will depart Iraq. Thank you. All right, now let me turn it over to two people who really know what they're talking about, 
Colonel Homs and uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Noggle. Both of them are Academy graduates, one from the Naval Academy, one from uh, West Point. They're both war veterans. Colonel Homs has been in Somalia and in Iraq, and uh, Colonel Noggle participated in both Gulf Wars, the first Persian Gulf War as well as the second. They're both scholars. They both, interestingly enough, have PhDs from uh, Oxford. And they're both uh, uh, authors of a number of uh, books and, and, and articles. And let me just uh, uh, mention a couple. Uh, <clears throat> Colonel Hobbs's book is called The Sling and the Stone on War in the 21st uh, Century. Uh, Colonel Noggle's uh, book is called, and I love this title, Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife, Counterinsurgency Lessons from Malaya and Vietnam. And Colonel Noggle was also on the writing team that produced the Army's new counterinsurgency manual. So, Colonel Holmes, if I can ask you to make a few comments. Thank you very much. This is an interesting and difficult paper to evaluate. Um, there's a continuing argument here, and we kind of are joining in the middle. This paper is an argument against the we can't withdraw quickly people. Uh, and frankly, the we can't withdraw quickly people have made a dishonest argument. It's just flat out dishonest. It will not take three to four years to get the equipment out of Iraq. That's not true. And this paper essentially destroys that argument. Um, the problem is I wish you'd written a paper you kind of briefed, where the front hand half of the paper is the much more important part on what do we have a timeline or don't we have a timeline. The problem, I have two major problems with the paper. The first is that it's essentially an operational plan without a strategic concept. You gave the strategic concept at the beginning, and that needed to be part of the paper unless it's part of a series and I've missed the front end of it. The second thing is that we've got Washington, D.C. planners trying to conduct operational and tactical level planning. Concepts can be done from here. Operational and tactical level planning need to be left in theater. And this may be, frankly, in response to you've got an argument from the, the Kant side that says I've got to move every piece, so you've got to investigate down to that level to say you can but starting with problem one, the conclusion at the end of the summary, the introduction says, the time for half measures and experiments is over. It is now time for a logistically sound strategic redeployment. So the strategic decision has been made by the paper without an argument. Now, as you go in uh, at the very end of the paper, the conclusion is much less radical where it discusses the diplomatic, political, and military steps that must be taken first. We need an expansion on that if I'm going to buy into that we got to go now. Um, the body of the paper is, in fact, titled The Strategy, Phase Consolidation. This implies that phase consolidation is agreed upon strategy when, in fact, it's really an operational technique to disengage. And I would rather see a more discussion of the point you made about is the timeline valid or not. That's the central argument, and that's the important argument, and you introduced it very well in the, in the piece in there. Um, any kind of a decision like this has to be based on conditions that affect the strategic situation, not just in Iraq, but in the region. And you discussed that again in the beginning of the, in the introduction. Uh, the paper, unfortunately, assumes a timeline is the single condition. Again, it seems to be in response to an ongoing argument. It never asks what our strategic goals in Iraq are, nor how we might achieve them. It simply assumes the goal is to get the troops out. And it states those who oppose the short timeline do so purely because of the argument we it'll take more time to get the gear out. Now, there's a lot of people, including myself, who oppose that type of withdrawal, but it's not based on the gear. Frankly, at the cost, we could walk away from the gear, and we've done that before. It's not, the gear is not an issue really at all. Problem two, the paper plans down brigade layer, brigade level. The basic rule in operational planning is think down to 
right down one. So if you're a core headquarters, you think down to brigade, because the brigades are what the divisions have to move. So you think down two levels, but you don't tell that division commander what he's going to do with those brigades. You write his mission based on your understanding of what they can do. Let him figure it out. Um, and the rule is simple enough that even at the next level headquarters, you don't know enough about the conditions two levels down to plan for that level. Uh, despite all the fantasy of network centricity and the flattened battlefield, that in fact is, no, is not true. The other problem I have with the paper is it doesn't mention the other nations involved, the allies, or the contractors. Remember, we got almost as many contractors in that place as we got troops. How do we get them out, particularly since in many cases they're the logistic plug that supports the troops? So we've got to figure that out. And the only contingency planning is kind of a vague wave at the embassy security with the Mew at the airport. Again, I don't think it's appropriate for national-level planners to decide what is an appropriate response force there. Uh, th what you do is task them what the mission is. Do you provide close security for the embassy and against what kinds of threats? And this is a problem that started when the war started. We had people sitting across the river in the Pentagon deciding how many brigades the commanders on the ground would need and fundamentally where those brigades would go. Uh, and again, this is one of the real dangers of information technology is that we begin to think that because we can see through a soda straw, we understand. Uh, so in conclusion, it suffers from the two major problems uh, of our original plan to go into Iraq in that it's based on a vision. We have to get out quickly and Iraq remains stable and peaceful. That is an arguable vision. It makes no provision for what to do if the vision is wrong. Suppose, for instance, they don't greet us with flowers. We had that problem before. We say that they'd probably be happy to see us go. That is probably true. But Aiden was very happy to see the British go, and yet there was a tremendous bloodletting at the very end for the simple reason everybody wanted bragging rights to say they were the guys who drove the British out. So you've got to kill a few of them on the way out. The other one we don't consider is the reignited civil war, which is frankly by far the most dangerous threat. It contains no discussion of how neighboring nations may react and no consideration of the wider strategic situation. In short, the paper does what it planned to do in terms of the ongoing argument. It totally demolishes a false argument. The logistics mean it will require years to get out of Iraq. I think the paper completely demolishes that. But the situation has changed dramatically since that argument started, and uh, John, I think, is going to tell you in his talk exactly how dramatically. So in light of the new conditions, we need to get on with the discussion of our strategic goals in the region and how best to achieve them. And this discussion about whether it is uh, timeline-based or not is valid uh, as it applies to our goals in the region. Thank you very much. John? Well, it's a, it's a great pleasure for me to be here with uh, a man I've admired for many years, Larry Korb, and my old friend T.X. Hammes. And I, in my own life, T.X. has been sort of like the sand in the oyster that produces pearls. And, and uh, certainly my hope is that uh, today he's uh, um, uh, played that role with, with this, this uh, paper, the Center for American Progress Report, How to Redeploy. And the paper states correctly that the security situation in Iraq is dramatically improved from a year ago. And I'd like to start off by talking about that from my own experience. I've just returned from 10 days on the ground in Iraq, uh, uh, not, quite, uh, not quite back a week here. Two of my, uh, my battle buddies on that trip, Colin Call and Sean Brimley, I think are in the audience. And I'm hoping they will, uh, they, they will correct uh, my mistakes and my misperceptions. Our trip included battlefield circulation in Baghdad, Mosul and Basra, the only place we didn't get was out west to, uh, to Ramadi, my old stomping grounds. We spent a fair amount of time with General Petraeus, uh, Ambassador Crocker, and also a, a pretty good amount of time with Iraqi citizens, including some politicians. 
and I'd like to begin with, with my impressions from the front. Attacks in Baghdad are down to four a day. Uh, two of the days we were in Baghdad, uh, there were no attacks in that city. Dora Market in Baghdad, once a war zone, is now a recovering war zone. Uh, there's a, a thriving gym with gym membership, a waiting list to get into the gym, and, and surreally Arnold Schwarzenegger posters on the walls from, from an earlier day. Uh, the Rashid Bank was open and conducting lots and lots of transfer payments. Uh, and, and interestingly, the, the uh, person in charge, there was a, 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 a male manager, but the deputy manager clearly in charge. She was a woman wearing a very flashy costume jewelry earrings, no abaya, and, and she had things to do and, and uh, um, talked to us a little bit, but really wanted to take care of her customers. Fascinatingly, we saw at least a half a dozen jewelry stores open. And there is no better sign of security in place than jewelry stores open. Obviously, uh, very easy snatch and grab, less security on those than we see in lots of jewelry stores here. Uh, and importantly, the market was protected not just by the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police, but also by the sons and daughters of Iraq, who were Sunnis who volunteered to fight with us against al-Qaeda in Iraq in late 2006, in what is now clearly one of the turning points of the war. So Baghdad and Basra are better to alliterate, Mosul uh, is, is um, still in the midst of, of a running gunfight. Uh, the, the, the two battalion commanders in Mosul, Keith Barclay and Chris Johnson, are both personal friends of mine. We got to spend some time with them. They are, um, they are fighting against al-Qaeda, and, and uh, Larry correctly noted that that will be the, uh, uh, hopefully will be the last place we have to do this in Iraq. Uh, I, would, I would contend that withdrawing too soon increase, increases the chances that we won't finish the job. Chris and Keith fighting a tough fight um, even as we speak. So many things are better. The sons and daughters of Iraq matter. The Iraqi army much better. But the Iraqis are not ready to take over security themselves. And at least in private, they'll admit that. Campbell Robertson had a very good New York Times piece on uh, August 6th uh, last week. And the title was, The Iraqi Army is Willing but not able to fight. And I, I disagree with the title a little bit. I would add the word alone. The Iraqi army is willing and able to fight, but not yet by itself. And, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mohammed Najim Kariri, uh, uh, an officer in the 3rd Battalion of the Iraqi Army's 19th Brigade, said, quote, we are too many years behind other countries. We need the coalition forces until 2015. And I think that's probably about right. The Iraqi attack that cleared Basra of Jaish al-Mahdi in April would almost certainly have failed without American advisors and close air support. It was toppling on, uh, on the edge of failure. And I fear that the proposal in this paper for a rapid withdrawal of all American forces would cause uh, the collapse of the Iraqi security forces. And I'd like to quote, I'd like to disagree a little bit with Larry on uh, the, the origins of the awakening and, and what happened there. And I'm going to refer to uh, an excellent military review paper, uh, article, excuse me, from uh, March, April of this year, uh, Anbar Awakens, The Tipping Point by Major Neil Smith, a friend of mine, and Colonel Sean McFarland. McFarland was the commander of the Ready First Combat Brigade, uh, which was uh, present in Ramadi uh, when, when uh, um, not when the turnaround happened, but when we cemented down the turnaround. And uh, Neil and, and Colonel McFarland uh, um, state, Instead of telling the Sunni Sheikhs that we would leave soon and they must assume responsibility for their own security, we told them we would stay as long as necessary to defeat the terrorists. That was the message they had been waiting to hear. 
As long as they perceived us as mere interlopers, they dared not throw in their lot with ours. When they began to think of us as reliable partners, their attitudes began to change. And I would argue that this, that, that, that statement is supported by uh, a great amount of, of counterinsurgency literature, which points out that a counterinsurgency campaign is a struggle for the support of the population. And the population often would prefer to have the government forces take control. In general, they are less likely to commit human rights abuses. They are more likely to promote economic development. However, the, um, the insurgent forces have the extraordinary advantage of being able to come into their houses at night and slit their throats. And so until you get to the point that the, the families, the population feels secure enough to throw in their lot with the counterinsurgent forces, they will lend at least tacit support, unwilling support. Uh, Stuart Harrington's great book about Vietnam, Silence Was a Weapon. Silence is a weapon in these kind of fights. So you've got to provide enough security that the people are willing to side with you and they believe you're going to stick it out for the long haul. And I think we, we, um, we've accomplished that in a lot of places in Iraq. Uh, Mosul, uh, still not quite enough boots on the ground to, uh, to, to protect the people, to make the people feel secure against the AQI presence in that city. And, and that message is really the message we received, uh, Colin, Sean, and I, the, the folks we were traveling with, from every Iraqi we talked to. They absolutely want America to leave, but not yet and not soon. The uh, opinion was especially strikingly uh, conveyed in a meeting we attended at the headquarters of the Mithal al-Alusi party in Karada. This is a secular political party. They pulled 75 people into the, the, the leader of the party's office, and we had this impromptu sort of seminar on Iraqi and American politics. Fascinating. They were very, very concerned that America is going to withdraw too quickly, that we're not going to be able to cement the security goals. They, they believe that were that to happen, Iraq would fall back into the, the situation it just was. And frankly, I promised them that I would do everything I could to prevent that from happening. And, and I, I think one of the, the um, disagreements I have with the paper is a differing assessment of the capacity, the capability, and the driving factors behind the Iraqi government. The paper suggests, uh, I'll quote page four, the reason the Iraqi government has not made satisfactory progress toward national reconciliation, nor implemented critical power or revenue-sharing laws, is because they are absent an incentive to truly take over their own affairs. And in fact, it's my belief that at least as significant a reason for Iraq's lack of political progress and slower military progress than in some ways this paper suggests, it's not a lack of will as much as it is a lack of capacity. For the 37 years of Saddam Hussein's rule, initiative was ruthlessly squashed in Iraq. Democracy, while freeing talent, has not eradicated 40 years of neglect of human capital. Put simply, the Iraqis don't know how to run a government. We were told that it takes more than a dozen signatures, culminating in the approval of a three-star general, to release Humvee tires to an Iraqi platoon that needs them. So this is a government that is still mired in bureaucracy, has numerous checks in which no one is willing to make a decision, and it's going to take a while for, for them to learn how to do those things, and I believe we can help them do that. But the fact that it will take a while for Iraq to get its affairs in order politically doesn't mean that we have to maintain a large American combat force there indefinitely. A roadmap to a different solution was provided to us by Colonel Dominic Caracillo, a brigade commander in the 101st Airborne, whose men patrol what used to be called the Triangle of Death, but is now only half-mockingly called the Triangle of Love. 
uh, attacks that are down from 50 a week a year ago to only a couple uh, a week now, and, and many of those are, are pretty ineffective, uh, small pop-and-drop uh, improvised explosive devices, although there's no such thing as a small IED when it goes off on you. Kirasolo is implementing a drawdown of American forces in which a transition task force will replace his brigade. The task force won't conduct counterinsurgency itself, but will support the newly expanded 17th Division of the Iraqi Army. Its commander, who we met with, Major General Ali, has his challenges. He's short on body armor and helmets, and he'd sure like some of his own artillery so that he doesn't have to rely on ours. But as Colonel Kirasolo says, Ali's forces are good enough for the enemy they have to face. I believe they are, as long as we continue to support them with advisors, air support, intelligence assets, and a steadily diminishing number of U.S. combat units partnered with and in support of Iraqi army and police units. Iraq faces real threats, both from inside and outside its borders, and I believe the United States has a long-term interest in helping it defeat and deter those threats. In my opinion, the most effective way to accomplish these national objectives is to conduct, as the paper says, a responsible phased withdrawal of U.S. combat troops from Iraq. But I believe that process won't take 10 months, but is likely to take a period of years, with a gradually decreasing number of U.S. combat forces and an increasing emphasis on U.S. advisors. Counterinsurgency is messy and slow, and there are no fast or easy answers, no matter how much we'd like there to be. Uh, thank you uh, uh, both. The interesting thing is when we asked uh, the two colonels to comment on the paper, both of them said, we disagree. So I said, that's what we want, to have a, a good discussion, and they certainly made the case. Let me respond to a couple of things that have been raised, because I think they are very critical points that we need to be aware of. Uh, Colonel Hahn's point about no strategic plan, I tried in the front to summarize the reasons for it, and we referred to some of the other publications we put out. Our, uh, we put out a place called Strategic Reset, and I summarized that in the, in the last paragraph, basically saying that until you get out of Iraq, you will not be able to deal with the problems in the, in the greater, greater Middle East. Uh, I also pointed out in here, and I think it's important, and again, the strategic thing is these arguments have been summarized so many times, well, nobody talks about the cost of our remaining in there in terms of what it does and uh, what it prevents us from doing using our hard and soft power in other places around, around the world, not paying attention to or not having the resources to deal with the situation uh, in, uh, in, in Afghanistan, what it's doing to our army in terms of the people that it's able to attract when the American people have turned against the war. And, you know, if you read Aaron David Miller's uh, a new book where he talks about the United States is not liked, not feared, nor respected in that part of the world, I believe you will not, until you get out of Iraq, be able to do that. And so that's pretty much uh, a part of the, uh, of the, of the, of the strategic uh, thing that we're talking about, that it will actually enhance American security. Uh, the other thing is that as long as we're there, we're empowering Iran. And uh, Iran will not work with us uh, until we set a date to get out to, to, uh, to uh, ensure that Iraq becomes stable. People forget that Iran was very helpful to us in Afghanistan until they got put on the axis of evil. And so they simply do not uh, trust us, and I don't think you can, until you set, set, a, set a date, they will. The other thing is that this is the one thing the Iraqis agree on. 
the Iraqis want us out. And as long as that government is seen as a creature of the U.S., I don't think it's going to able to be uh, to to be, be be effective. So I think in terms of the strategy, it would actually enhance our security, and 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 we have talked about that in other publications. Now let me get to a couple of things that John talked about in terms of the capacity of the Iraqi government. I agree. In fact, I was sent over there last year by the National Academy of Public Administration you know, to meet with them to talk about the capacity of the Iraqi government. There's no doubt about the fact that it's hard to get to get things done. But we're not talking about capacity here. You take, for example, this that much heralded provincial election law, okay? You know, the president of Iraq vetoed it, okay? And then the parliament adjourned without, you know, taking up uh, uh, action on it. So that was supposed to occur in October. It will not occur, you know, maybe, you know, next year. And this is what I'm talking about. They have no incentive as long as we're there to be able, uh, you know, to get uh, to, to move uh, to, to move quickly. Uh, the Iraqi security forces, I agree with that article in the New York Times, they can't defend themselves against an external enemy. But for heaven's sakes, there's 600,000 of them there. They can't deal with 20,000 insurgents. The problem in Basra was they deserted on the way in. That's why they had to call us uh, in. It wasn't a question of them not having the capacity to do it. And I think this is, you know, you've got members of the Iraqi security forces who have more training than some of the young men and women we're sending over there uh, to, to deal with this. So this question about they're not ready, not ready for what? And we have argued in the past that you, when you get out, you don't leave the region. And we pointed that out in here. You'll still be there if there's a major uh, conventional uh, uh, invasion. And again, I think, you know, in terms of the awakening, uh, you know, if you, we have a quote in here from uh, Major General John Allen, the Marine commander in Al Anbar. And he said, uh, the election in 2006 did not go unnoticed. They talked about it all the time. He went on to say that the Marines in Anbar from top to bottom reinforced the message sent by the 2006 election by saying, we are leaving. We don't know when we're leaving, but you don't have much time to you to, to better get, out, get after this. And that, to me, was the, the key thing. And I think that when you look at that, that was the big turning point in all of the problems we have was the sons of, of, of Iraq and the so-called Iraqi awakening. Now, we make a comment in here about the surge, and, you know, I don't want to get into all of the arguments about the surge, but the fact of the matter is violence is down, and John pointed it out. The question is, are you going to take uh, care of it? And I haven't been to Iraq and talked to all the people you have. I, you know, sit home, but I got a quote from a lieutenant in the 2nd Infantry Battalion of the 4th Brigade, 10th Mountain Division. That was in Salon.com. He said, if there's ever been a time to withdraw American troops, now's the time. Since I've been here, nobody has shot at me, and I haven't shot at anybody, so why not capitalize on this? So with that, if you guys have any comments, if not, we can turn over to the... Um, this is a discussion we should be having uh, at the strategic <laughs> level, uh, rather than timeline on withdrawing. The concept that the Iranians oppose us because we're there, I think, misunderstands. I absolutely agree. Iran was very helpful in Iraq and in for, or Afghanistan. And then for some reason, we threw them onto the axis of evil. I don't know if we needed somebody to round out the threesome or what the hell the logic on that was, but I, I, the logic escapes me. They fear a destabilized 
Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, they make the point that they lost more people to the Iraq invasions of the 80s than at any time since Genghis Khan passed through. Uh, so they're very attuned to this and are willing to cooperate with us. My concern is that if we withdraw and instability starts, which there's still a high probability, not the insurgency. Frankly, the insurgency doesn't worry me. It is civil war, which, remember, we had transitioned from insurgency to a nearly full-blown civil war before this got over. That can reignite. If that reignites, Iran will enter. As far as not being able to do anything in the Middle East until we're out, if we pull out and it collapses, we have zero credibility, and rightfully so. We've gone in, we kicked over the ash can, and we left. Um, you may have noticed I don't think the plan to go into Iraq was particularly a good idea, nor was it well executed. So you had a bad idea, poorly executed, and now we are where we are. I think that if we do the sudden withdrawal, we're going back along that route. We're taking a look without a significant study of the strategic impact, and we're assuming we're going to get certain results. What I don't see is the branch plans and the sequels, where a branch plan is we're starting down a path and something happens that we didn't anticipate. And so you have a plan ready to operate in that condition. A sequel is it goes as we plan. Now what do we do? And you've got a bit of that with the we keep forces in the, in the Middle East. But I'm happy we're having more of this discussion and less of the mechanical discussion of how to get out. Okay. John? Great. Um, let me talk to the question of, of uh, the Army being under strain, which it absolutely is. But let me also say that um, morale... Uh, among the troops and, and uh, among my friends is far higher in 2008 than it was a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. The, the change in attitude is palpable. Uh, the guys can tell we're winning. Uh, even the guys in, in, in Mosul who are engaged in a tough gunfight know that they are winning that tough gunfight. So uh, although the Army is working hard and, and, you know, for God's sake, if you see a guy in uniform, buy him a beer, uh, he, he deserves it. Um, the, the, the um, morale of the Army is, in my opinion, improving, uh, not going down. Larry mentioned the, the need to send additional forces to Afghanistan. I concur with that completely, and, and the, uh, the Office of the Secretary of Defense is, is engaged in a tough balancing act now, trying to figure out how quickly they can withdraw forces from Iraq while preserving security gains there and preserving American interests, both in Iraq and in the region, while simultan simultaneously sending more badly needed troops to Afghanistan. Uh, just at least as important as the additional combat brigades we're going to send to Afghanistan is the increase in the size of the Afghan National Army. What we've seen in Iraq recently is a payoff on a long-term investment in the Iraqi security forces that started under Major General Eaton, who had, had TX work for him for a month before he got smart, I think. Uh, but th that started way back in 2004, and it takes a long time to build an army. It's easy to disband. It's hard to build. And, and uh, what we've got to do is the same, the same long, slow process that we did in Iraq, we've got to do in Afghanistan. Secretary Gates last week announced a, a doubling or near doubling of the size of the Afghan National Army, exactly what we need to do. But again, it's going to take a, a while for that investment to pay off. Uh, I, I disagree slightly with, with uh, Larry's interpretation of the Basra fight. Some Iraqi units performed well in that fight. Some performed poorly. Uh, none of them uh, were, were able to succeed in a, a fight against a pretty tough Jaish al-Mahdi enemy uh, without uh, an American enablers, particularly uh, helicopter support, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, and some uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets that a very small number of American soldiers, Marines, brought to the fight. 
that we don't have to stay in large numbers to enable and empower and dramatically increase the chances for a much better outcome in Iraq. Um, we're currently engaged in a, in, in a classic balance of power operation against Iran in, in Iraq, I believe. TX City was afraid that, that Iran would enter if we withdrew. I will tell you that, uh, public record, uh, there are Iranian agents obviously working inside Iraq. It would be surprising if that were not the case. The question is, uh, how can we maintain that balance of power most effectively? And certainly the, the Iraqi citizens I talked to, who again, wanted us to leave, but not yet, and not real soon, they were very afraid of, of uh, uh, excessive Iranian influence on, uh, on Iraqi politics and on uh, Iraqi daily life. Um, I, I, I've talked to, to Major General John Allen uh, of the United States Marine Corps, who, who uh, played an important role in the Anbar awakening. Um, my understanding of his understanding of uh, what happened is a little different than Larry's, and, and I'd, I'd suggest that, that maybe we, we, the three of us, grab lunch sometime. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, and have that discussion. And uh, uh, two last things, if I can. Uh, Larry quoted a lieutenant who wanted to, to redeploy and go home when I was a lieutenant. I wanted to redeploy and go home, too. It, it, that's, what, that's what lieutenants do. They're, they're 23 years old. Um, the, the, I, I turned 25, uh, actually, in, in uh, the last day of Operation Desert Storm. Um, there were other places I wanted to celebrate my 25th birthday, although it was memorable, I'll admit. Finally, the... Um, um, it's back to Lieutenant Noggle, it, it just tears at my heartstrings to talk about a withdrawal where we leave equipment behind. As a lieutenant, I had to buy some wrenches and stuff that we lost during a field, uh, field exercise. The Army is all about taking care of stuff, and I think it would, it would really uh, be very, very hard for, for the lieutenants and the sergeants and the captains to leave behind American equipment in a case where, where we really don't need to do that. But I think that we're not talking about leaving tactical equipment behind. We're talking about leaving steam tables and portageons and coffee shops and gym equipment. Uh, X-ray machi machines was quoted, and those are expensive. X-ray yeah. machines are part of your medical equipment you take them. But the stuff that we've taken over for troop comfort, we can sign over to the Iraqis. It, it is possible to deploy without Starbucks. I realize that's a shot for a guy from the Army, but... Uh, okay, well, thank you all. This has uh, been great. We're actually five minutes ahead of schedule. Uh, let me first see if there's any questions from the press that uh, any members of the press want to ask a question before we go to the general audience. Uh, press, you got a press question? Um, uh, Please identify yourself. Uh, Carl Lubsdorf of the Dallas Morning News. I had a feeling I was seeing the McCain-Obama first debate here to, to this <laughs> afternoon. Um, uh, Mr. Corbin, in your presentation, how do you deal with the argument that if your initial proposal had been accepted and started to be implemented back when you first proposed it, the successes of the surge would not have been able to take place. <clears throat> well, I, I think it's an interesting thing in terms of what would have happened had we done this. When we first wrote, it was 2005, okay? The Civil War had not broken, uh, broken out yet. And again, I think, you know, I, I'm going to... At some point when I get some time, write a piece. What if we didn't have a surge? Okay, would you have had the awakening? I think to me that was a key thing, and it started. Remember that Colonel McFarlane, now General uh, McFarlane, was actually left there in January 2007, even before the surge started. He's the one who gets a lot of the a lot of the credit. Now, once you had that, 
would then Sadr have, if the Sunnis weren't fighting, would he have, you know, laid down his arms? We don't know. What I do know is since this surge started, there have been over a thousand Americans killed. I do know that. And yes, the violence has come down, but remember how much it went up from January 2007 you know, up through the uh, through the summer, the number of, of Iraqis, uh, you know, Iraqis killed. Uh, I'm glad the morale of the troops is good, but I'm looking at the people joining the army. The army gave uh, waivers to over 800 felons last year to co- you know to to come in. So I mean, you have to take a, a look at that and and, and <clears throat> the uh, problems we have in terms of the money that we spent on this war that's, you know, accumulating our our deficit. Iran has become more powerful. I agree that Iran does not want an unstable Iraq. And uh, John mentioned they're already there. I know that. But the fact of the matter is they're doing that because they want to keep us, you know, tied down. What would happen? Where would the situation be in Afghanistan now? I mean, those are the questions I think you have to ask. And I think, you know, Colonel Harms was right. I mean, you have to look at the overall strategic Thing. I mean, our objective is, quote-unquote, not to win the war in Iraq. It's to enhance American security, and it is to, you know, make progress in what you mistakenly call, but the president calls it the global war on, uh, on, on terror. Dad, you guys, if you guys want to comment, just jump in. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to, uh, I'd like to recommend uh, two books that, that analyze the surge that I've read pre-pub. Uh, Bing West, uh, former Marine. Uh, author of The Village, has a, his third book on Iraq, The Strongest Tribe, which I think is coming out next week, is a, a really a bottom-up look at the surge, being as embedded with more than 60 units, and he, he tells the story of the surge very, very well, in my opinion. Uh, I also don't like the phrase, the surge. I, I think that, the, that, that name overemphasizes the importance of the number of troops and, and doesn't properly pay credit to, as, as uh, Larry mentioned, the, the Sunni awakening, the decision by uh, uh, Badr to, to stand down, but also the uh, change in counterinsurgency tactics, principles, uh, and, and strategy uh, adopted by American forces. The other book I'd recommend is Linda Robinson's Tell Me How This Ends, which is really a top-down look at the surge through the eyes of General Petraeus and his staff. Uh, and I think this debate um, that, that, uh, uh, that Larry just engaged in is one that will continue for a number of years, but those two books should inform any discussion of, the, uh, of what happened. Okay. Other press, Garrett? Gareth Porter, Interpress Service. Um, Colonel Nagel, uh, you used the phrase that the United States is engaged in a balance of power operation with Iran in Iraq. Is this a code word for U.S. need for permanent military bases or long-term military bases? Uh, Can you explain what you mean by that, please? Uh, uh, balance of power politics, of course, occurs uh, whenever two states have have, uh, opposing interests. the antipathy, and that's, that's not nearly a strong enough word between uh, Iraq and Iran, uh, is very strong and palpable, particularly in Basra, uh, where, where uh, I was told 90% of families had lost either a son or a husband in the, uh, in the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. So uh, there, there is a struggle for influence and power happening between Iran and Iraq, and the United States is, is currently, uh, I would argue, um, the, the supporter and guarantor to a certain extent of uh, Iraqi sovereignty in that struggle. Uh, I believe that the Iraqi security forces will in time be able to guarantee their own, be able to take care of sovereignty on their own, be able to deal with, uh, deter external threats and defend their own borders. They are not there yet and they will not be for some time to come. 
I, I don't believe that American bases will be required in Iraq. Obviously, we have other bases in the region. I do believe that American advisors will have a role to play in being stationed at Iraqi bases to improve the capability and the capacity of Iraqi security forces, in particular Iraqi air forces, which are um, some years behind the development of the ground forces. Any other press? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, Mary Beth Sheridan from the Washington Post. Um, Colonel Ham, uh, you had mentioned that uh, you saw the Civil War uh, reigniting as by far the most dangerous threat in Iraq right now. Could you elaborate a little more on what you see as the possible danger there? And if that was to occur, what sort of you know, response would be um, necessary from U.S. forces? Thank you. Well, this is where this may surprise you, but as a Marine, I'm going to venture into areas that are not politically correct. Um, right now, the conflict is mostly Shia on Shia and Sunni on Sunni, and that's not a bad thing for us. Because that doesn't spread outside of Iraq. That's power struggles within the Shia community and Sunni community that are both political and criminal slash violent. The danger with a Shia on Sunni is that the outside powers would feel a need to get involved. There's a great uh, Sunni fear of a, a Shia arc across or going from Persia, across Iraq, and all the way over to Lebanon. And that's a... Whether it's a legitimate concern or not is not the issue. The fact that it is a deep concern for them. Both sides will begin supporting their factions. Civil wars tend to be violent to begin with, then grow completely out of control, and often take a decade or more to resolve, and tend to drag in surrounding areas. And, of course, the surrounding areas uh, have the resources that essentially drive the world economy, oil. Uh, maybe politically incorrect to say, you know, we have to keep security there for oil, but it's a reality. So there would be the danger. The role of American forces is like we did before. We essentially separated the warring factions, gave them a certain assurance that they wouldn't be attacked in their homes, and then they could start to back down. One of the hopeful signs is that the politicians on both sides looked into the abyss of civil war, understood what damage they could do to each other, and backed off. And as, while we're there in significant numbers, we can maintain that level. The key is if at some point either side thinks they're vulnerable and decides to lash out first. And of course, Al-Qaeda in Iraq and uh, some of the radicals throughout this entire period have been desperately trying to reignite the Civil War. I mean, that is their one route left to victory. If they can reignite the Civil War, then maybe they can pull something out of this. That's my concern, and that's what I think has to be the most delicate piece of our withdrawal operation. Let me make one comment on, on that. <clears throat> At some point, the United States will have to leave. And if, in fact, they don't make the political accommodations, you're going to have a civil war. And that's why we've been trying to say, what incentive do you have to get them to do that? I mean, look at this provincial election law. I mean, you see how they basically keep kicking the can down the road. That is one of the ways in which you will mitigate the, the prospect of, of, a, uh, of, a, of a civil war. And so I think that's kind of the key thing. How do you get them to do what they need to do and what's the best incentive? Because my feeling is as long as we're there, uh, basically, then they're not going to do this because these are hard things uh, to do. Okay, any other press? Uh, Are you press? Yes. Okay, go ahead. Elliot Francis, ATN. Could you elaborate on some of the safety issues inherent in leaving 
uh, the region quickly, not only from the standpoint of U.S. forces, but also some of the nationals that will be left behind. Um, obviously, the, there's a number of problems here. One is if there's any kind of a hint of an emerging civil war or continuing struggles, there's going to be great bragging rights to whoever drove the Americans out. Because, again, they all agree they wanted the Americans to leave. Now, Maliki's getting rights now because he's kind of negotiating us out. If, as we start to withdraw, Sadr sees an opportunity to shoot at us, and we are extraordinarily vulnerable, we have made the brilliant decision of having our logistics done by third-world drivers in white trucks. Our supply chain relies on drivers from Bangladesh agreeing to come to work in the morning. I think an insurgent group can stop that, and certainly in 2004, Sauter's guys in the south really had us on the ropes on that one. So all of those are there. The danger, um, frankly, there are still Iraqis who work for us who are desperately trying to get out. There's still marked people in their communities. So there isn't, while there's a, a great deal more stability than there used to be, it's still not all there. Um, that kind of violence starts. Many of the, of the societies are still tribal there, and there are requirements that if you attack my tribe, I have to do payback. And then uh, depending upon the different tribal codes, there are different degrees of payback and different numbers of generations I have to do it and all the other things that, that are involved in this. All of that tension was in play when the Civil War was building. And we were extraordinarily fortunate to get everybody to back away from that. We've got to be very, very careful we don't reignite that. Because frankly, if it gets to be a hard Civil War, we will be hard-pressed to get out of there. And, we do not have the logistics to do it under fire. Well, that's one of the points I try to make in the paper, that right now is a good time to get out, and we can take control of our own, own security. And since everybody wants us to go, it's hard for me to think that they're going to make it difficult. And whatever else you may think about our military, they're damn good at logistics. And so I, I think you could do it, but that's the, the point I try to make in the paper. We're, they're pretty good at fighting, too. Um, the, uh, there's, there's, there's sort of a, a, a fundamental disagreement on the, the, the panel, obviously. Um, and and I, I'd like to, 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 to disagree with, with, with a couple of things uh, Larry has said uh, in, in my tradition of being disagreeable. First, he says at some point the U.S. will have to leave. And in fact, what I see is a gradual tapering off. We, we have, uh, I'm not sure everybody in the room knows, we've had a substantial advisory presence to the Saudi Arabian military for a number of years, dating back, in fact, before Operation Desert Storm, so that, that I was a lieutenant then. That was a while ago. And, and we continue to have an advisory effort in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and a number of countries in the region and, in fact, around the globe. Those American advisors advance American interests uh, while simultaneously advancing the interests, the capability, and the capacity of the states in which they operate. I see a future for uh, America and Iraq similar to that, a beneath-the-radar, behind-the-scenes advisory and logistics effort. By the way, that helps ensure that the Iraqis buy American tanks instead of somebody else's tanks, and I think that's a very good thing both for our economy, um, for, the, for the jobs of many people in this town, and, and also uh, we have long-term security interests in, in, um, in that. Second, um, I, I, I believe that... Um, uh, let me quote the paper and then disagree with it. By putting the Iraqi government and its na neighbors on notice that they, not the United States, will be responsible for the consequences of any instability in Iraq, the United States will give all players involved an incentive to begin acting constructively in Iraq. I disagree with that fundamentally. I believe that players will act in what they perceive to be their own self-interest. 
What's happening now is our presence, our stabilizing presence, is, is allowing them to, cons to together see a positive, what we would see as a positive interest of a unitary Iraq in which Sunnis and Shia live cooperatively and, and in which progress can slowly occur. Were we to withdraw, were we to take those, those damping rods out of the nuclear reactor, I, I believe that the, the Sunnis and the Shias would again act in what they perceive to be their own self-interest without our moderating influence. And I fear, as TX does, that that could lead to civil war. Press? Okay, last press, and then we'll go to the audience. <clears throat> uh, thanks. Spencer Ackerman with the Washington Independent. Um, I wanted to see if, uh, with apologies to TX, if we could reconcile Larry and John for a bit. Um, with, uh, John, with your, with your um, brigade commander friend in the Triangle of Love, um, the transition from a brigade combat team uh, to uh, the transitional task force that you described, could that actually be something more of a model for um, an accelerated withdrawal? Meaning we get, uh, to, to contrast with what Larry pointed out, um, simply not replacing the brigades as they transition out. What if we move them to a transitional task force model? They do the kind of oversight and close air support that you discuss. That gets us on, on, on a faster timetable than perhaps what you were talking about, John, when you quoted that, that Iraqi division commander was talking about 2015. Um, but it also gets us down in numbers rather rapidly, perhaps um, in concert with what Maliki has now said to a 2010, whether he means combat or full withdrawal, it's still not clear. What do you guys think about that? Uh, I, I, that's exactly right, Spencer. That, that is exactly what I think is going to happen, but it's going to happen based on conditions on the ground in each individual region. So the Triangle of Love is a place where we can do that, where we can replace a brigade with a battalion-based uh, battalion transition task force, which is a change from order of magnitude 4,000 soldiers to 1,000 soldiers. That's a pretty good withdrawal, but it's the Triangle of Love. Up in Mosul, we actually need more forces on the ground. So that this, this isn't a, there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer, but I absolutely believe Colonel Carasillo has, has the model for what's going to happen in Iraq. We're going to replace brigades with battalion task forces dedicated to the transition mission. As time goes by, we're going to replace battalion task forces with individual teams of advisors. Or there may be some Iraqi units that don't need advisors at all on a full-time basis, but if they have to go into combat, we'll have a... a um, a, a team of uh, forward air controllers who, who we insert into them from, from the embassy compound, that sort of thing. So that the, uh, the Iraqi battalion commander, when he talked about 2015, wasn't talking necessarily about keeping all American brigade combat teams until 2015, but he wants, what they really want is our intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, our air power, and, and, and frankly, our, our political support. And they're going to need those for a number of years, I believe. Let me say two things. I mean, we said you can do it in 8 to 10. I didn't say do it in 8 to 10. I'm, I was trying to refute the argument of people who say you have to stay three or four years. Uh, I think right now, you know, uh, a year and a half would be a reason we've written this before. A year and a half would be a reasonable time. But I think it's imperative that you set a specific date because that gives the incentive. If you don't do that and you say it's conditions-based and conditions on the ground, that'll give them the time to sort of, you know, uh, <coughs> avoid the tough things. The other is that the countries in the region know, and I, again, we're hypothesizing here, I think, but once Iran recognizes we're out of there, they're going to be willing to get involved constructively because the last thing they want to see is Iraq become a haven for al-Qaeda. I mean, that's why they helped us in, uh, in, in, in Afghanistan. It will also 
give us the opportunity to deal with our other interests. Right now, I mean, let's assume we say, okay, we'll get out when we can and things don't seem to be, you know, what we want, then we can't go to Afghanistan, all right? So I, I think that's important. And the other thing is, and John talked about the advisors in Saudi Arabia, I, I am actually convinced based on the Iraqi history, they don't like foreigners. And if you stay at some point, that enhances the narrative of the al-Qaeda. And so I would prefer to stay in the region rather than have forces there. Now, I recognize there are risks, but there are risks in no matter what you do right now. And I think that's the, that's the, that's the key thing. What we're trying to do is say, all right, this gives you, in my view, the best chance because nations act in their own self-interest and the countries around there don't want to see Iraq become a failed state. Uh, so, I mean, but this is basically, you know, the argument we've been, you know, we've been, uh, we've been uh, uh, making. Okay, we're finished with the press. All right, you were mentioned, Colin, by John, so... Uh, if you... <laughs> yeah, Colin, but... Uh... Thanks. Uh, I'm Colin Call. I teach at Georgetown, and I work with John over at CNAS. Um, I would actually disagree a little bit with John's assessment about the necessary way forward is not all about Iraqi capacity. It depends on what issue you're talking about. If it's about budget execution or the professionalization of the security forces, John's right. If it's about the fundamental political deals that are necessary to lock in the gains from the surge, like provincial elections or integrating the sons of Iraq, it's not a capacity issue. It's a will issue. But that begs a question, Larry, about what your theory of politics is. Um, I see no evidence that if we withdraw and we do so without offering any assurance that at least some Americans will be there to protect groups that make tough choices, that the Iraqis will actually accommodate one another. In fact, interestingly enough, in your paper, on page three, you have two quotes. One is from General Allen, which you read in your uh, follow-on remarks, and the other is from McFarland. What's interesting is the Allen quote is actually from an interview that I had with John Allen. Uh, and, yeah, the problem is, Larry, you only quote the first half of what he said. In the first half of what he said, it was that uh, it was a prospect that we might withdraw, which motivated some of the sheikhs to turn, uh, to turn on al-Qaeda. Uh, John, uh, the, uh, the McFarland piece, makes a similar point. But what John Allen said to me and was quoted in the same article that you didn't include which was that once they made the tough decision to turn on AQI, we had to convince them we were going to stick around long enough so that they wouldn't get slaughtered. So, and McFarland makes the same point. It's both. It's the prospect that we are going to leave, which motivates them to stand up, but the prospect that we will stick around long enough so that it, when they make those tough decisions, all right, they don't get slaughtered. So the, my question about your theory of politics is whether you can elaborate on why you only quote one half of the equation. That is why the one that supports your argument, but not the one that runs counter to it. All right. The reason that I did that is twofold. Number one uh, was that people said that the election had nothing to do with it. In fact, people were arguing, as you well know, that it was the surge that got them to do it, to show that that, had, in fact, it had occurred before the surge. The other point is, in terms of sticking around, the question becomes how long. Okay, and, and that's the point we were, you know, trying to, try, trying to make, and we have made, as you know, several times that you ought to, you know, we said, you could, we first talked about this to set a, you know, deadline of about, uh, about 18 months, and that's the point we were trying to make. But I would also argue, as I try to make the point here, if they get the impression you're never going to leave, 
then you've got the, you know, the, 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 the downside. I mean, and we could go in, as we've done in some of our other papers, the fact that Maliki's not integrating them into the, you know, the, is, is basically, and somebody wrote last week, you know, uh, uh, you know, we're renting them for a while, and if Maliki doesn't do what he needs to do, then you're going to, you're, you're, you're asking, you know, you're asking for trouble. But I was trying to make the point in here that everybody said, oh, it was the surge. And I think, John, you're great. Oh, it was the surge that turned everything around. No, it actually happened before the surge. I'd like to comment on two things. One, the provincial elections question. Everybody has great faith that the provincial elections are going to be a big deal. Elections are the end result of democracy, not the beginning of democracy. It's when you've proven you can compromise enough to put together an election. And it is a process of getting to the election, I think. I'm not a political scientist. So I'm way out of my field here. But it seems logical to me that if you can do the process that gets you to the election with power sharing and fairness in the election, then you're arriving more at democracy. So I don't think us forcing the election on or making it happen quickly is necessarily a good thing. The second thing, uh, in my time, both in Afghanistan and Iraq, I have never had any trouble convincing people that we're going to leave. Uh, America doesn't have a reputation for staying around a long time. We have a tendency to bail. I mean, that is the perception that if things get a little tough, we'll be out of here. In fact, that is the entire insurgent strategy that they discuss on our website. You poke them hard enough, they'll go home. So I'm not that worried that everybody thinks we're in Iraq forever. I'm more concerned that we've got the second half of the problem, convincing them we're going to stay long enough that you can take the risk, you can do the risky thing, and you're not dead next week because we decide to go home. Yeah, I would disagree with you on Iraq. Given their history with the British, they exactly the same way. When I talk to, you know, to the Iraqis, they see us as the second coming of the British, who basically said the same thing and then hung around for, for, for quite a while. But, I, you know, again, that's a you know, historical point. All right, let's uh, get the next uh, question. Yes, sir. Wait for the microphone, if you and if identify yourself. Victor Rolberg, uh, part of the general public. Uh, could it be that uh, the fact that we are so, so embroiled in Iraq allowed the Russians to feel more comfortable entering Georgia? How many Georgians are there waiting for their day? Somebody said that th that subject was bound to come up today. It wasn't the subject of the panel. If you, do you want to comment at all on that? Um, certainly, um, American attention and resources have been focused disproportionately, I, I would argue, uh, on Iraq. Um, and we've recognized that by reapportioning some, some attention and some resources to Afghanistan uh, recently. Um, I, I'm, I'm certainly not a, so, uh, a, a, a student of, of Russian politics. I, I don't um, uh, understand everything that's going on there. I do know that uh, um, uh, the, the Georgians are the third largest troop contributing country uh, in Iraq. They, they have, I think, about 3,000 soldiers on the ground there after the Brits uh, in Iraq, and they are concerned about uh, bringing their soldiers back to fight the, the, the more pressing concern they have on the ground right now. Let me make one comment, which I think is important about this. The Bush doctrine of preventive war, not preemption, preventive war says that if somebody can cause you a problem in the future, you have the right to go in, which is, I mean, Iraq was not an imminent threat. So I think all of international relations now, you're going to have other countries basically quoting the Bush doctrine to justify, you know, their, their, their actions. Okay, uh, next, uh, let's go back there.
uh, Chachen freelance correspondent. I was late, and also I have a quick look at your report. Maybe I missed. I didn't see anything about the activity to win the heart of Iraq uh, people. You two have been there, and uh, what do you view on this, and necessity of it, and how to conduct it? Thank you. John, you're the author, one of the authors of the counterinsurgency manual. The, uh, the phrase winning hearts and minds is, is I think, uh, unfortunate. It was uh, originated by uh, Sir Gerald Templer, the tiger of Malaya, in the Malayan emergency, and, and he said that he deeply regretted that particular formulation. It, it doesn't play to uh, the, the real hard power nature of, of the concern of, of people. It isn't really necessary that they like you, and this is actually the point I, I wanted to make. Uh, Larry argued that uh, Iraq doesn't like foreigners, and I think that's absolutely true. Most countries don't, but I, I think the Iraqis uh, like the Iranians, by and large, a whole lot less than they like us. And, uh, um, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm off topic for a second, but uh, Larry's suggestion was that if we pulled out, the Iranians would suddenly decide that they wanted a strong and prosperous independent Iraq. My own belief is that they would decide that they wanted the nine southern provinces of Iraq to be Iran West. The, um, the Iraqi people um, want to be secure. They, they want to be free from the, the harm of, of either of uh, uh, improvised explosive devices uh, hurting them on the streets or of al-Qaeda slipping, um, uh, slipping into their homes and, and slitting their throats at night. So winning hearts and minds means providing security to the population. And what we did, uh, the, the, in, in, my, uh, in my eyes, one of the most important parts of, of what has changed in Iraq over the past two years has been an increased emphasis on providing security to the population. And, and what uh, General Petraeus did when he, when he uh, got on the ground was push soldiers out of the big forward operating bases and push them into joint security stations in which they were co-located in the neighborhoods with uh, Iraqi police and Iraqi army. And the, the total number of joint security stations created was in the, uh, on the order of uh, 75 throughout Baghdad with additional population security provided through the rest of the country. So to win hearts and minds, what you have to do is keep the people safe from imminent danger you can also, good article in the, uh, in, in the Washington Post today on SERP, the Commander's Emergency Response Program, you can use, uh, once you've cleared the enemy out of a region, uh, which usually has to be done, frankly, with American combat forces, you can then hold with uh, Iraqi or Afghan security forces enabled and empowered by uh, American combat multipliers and American advisors, and you can then build with all of the other instruments of uh, of national power, including commander's emergency response program funds. And that's where you really, you win the hearts and the minds after you've protected the bodies, and you do that by, by providing base population security in a counterinsurgency campaign. Thanks very yeah, much. essentially counterinsurgency, Galul in the 60s wrote down as two things, it's security and hope for a better future. We ignored security for the first three years of the war, and we finally got to it. Hope, uh, it doesn't have, and this is the other problem, we want hope for our vision of a better future. We wanted to give them freedom. They didn't ask for freedom. They asked for justice. I mean, that is a big difference. You can't cram freedom down their throat when they want justice. We are giving them security, which gives them a basic level of justice, and hope for a better future for their children. I must all the polls now discuss how hopeful the Iraqi people are. And that's when you really are winning them over, is when they see that your support means a better future for them, and even if not them, at least for their children. 
And I think there's really a perception of that in Iraq now. So that's the big change in counterinsurgency. But unequivocally, the very first piece is security. And frankly, that's where we're failing in Afghanistan. We're not providing security for the people. Okay. Question. Uh, yes, back there. Doug Brooks with the International Peace Operations Association. Um, two points. First of all, uh, just wanted to clarify that in terms of the contractors, there are more contractors than troops, but two-thirds of them are local Iraqis. Uh, they have been fairly robust uh, in terms of their operations, and mostly what they're doing is a reconstruction, really, not supporting the U.S. Uh, military so much. But my question is actually on the PRTs and the uh, provincial reconstruction teams. Uh, for all of you, including Larry, uh, would you foresee that, that we'd keep some sort of presence along those lines of these uh, reconstruction teams that are, that are uh, based in all the different areas? helping to um, uh, support governmental re reform and, and things like that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because we did, I mean, talk about getting the Iraqi uh, security contractors out of there and, and making provisions. We do, uh, we do mention that. Uh, There's 115,000 of them, but you have the best uh, records on that in terms of, but that's the best calculation we could uh, find. I think if, you, again, a PRT that's run by people from AID or the State Department, that's fine. I'm just talking about, you know, military because that has a completely different connotation in the Arab world, American military people. You know, we, John was talking about the fact we still have people in, in, in Saudi Arabia. One of the reasons that got bin Laden going is that after the first Persian Gulf War, we left a whole bunch of troops in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, and that became a rallying cry for him to, to get his movement going. I would think what you really need is not uh, provincial reconstruction. We're not responsible for reconstructing the province anymore. What we need is provincial government support teams. I mean, they really need help in how to write a basic budget, um, how to run a database for pay, all of those sorts of things that are we consider routine tools, and many of these provinces don't exist because they've never been done that way. The concept of transparency in government is fairly alien in that whole part of the world, and we're trying to implant truly alien ideas in a culture that is not particularly amenable to accepting those. So there's going to be a long-term provincial support team. I don't know what you call it. We've got to get away from any implication that we're either governing or reconstructing. We are there to help them do that. Yeah, I agree with that completely, and we got to meet with some, uh, some PRT leaders. I, I, I do think they're mis misnamed, misacronymed. Um, and what they're doing, I think, in most cases now, they've shifted from reconstruction to trying to do some of the government support stuff that TX uh, talks about. I, I, I um, have enormous respect for, for the, the courage and the service of, of the folks serving on, uh, on those PRTs today. Uh, I, I find it hard to believe that, that uh, um, brave as they are, that they would stay there in Iraq without an American military backup to call upon. So one of the as part of the continuing efforts to build an Iraq that can stand on its own, that is secure against internal and external threats, I do believe that we'll, we will continue to have civilian advisors on the ground in the provinces and in Baghdad, but I believe those, are, those guys are going to need a, an American safety net to back them up. Uh, it doesn't have to be anywhere near as large as the forces we have now, but it will be required for some time. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Okay, well, I guess we've got somebody back there. Okay, go ahead. It's hard to see you back there. Yes, Milton Wilkins, Progressive Policy Institute. This question is to Dr. Nagel. I'm a follow of your work, sir. 
Um, I wanted you to go more into the advantages or disadvantages comparatively of gradual versus precipitous withdrawal, uh, specifically whether or not one or the other would make reentry into Iraq easier after we'd withdrawn some troops if the worst came to worse, or whether or not just waiting until Iraq had been properly pacified so that we can withdraw most of our troops from particular provinces would be better so that we could hold on to greater security gains for a longer period of time and thus, well, as, as you said, it's an inaccurate term, win hearts and minds. Um, uh, Milton, um, one of the things that I found enormously frustrating when I was researching my dissertation was reading the after-action reports of units that had, had cleared, American units that had cleared areas in Vietnam. And in, in 1965, you'd read that we cleared a province, and then we cleared it again in 66, and then we cleared it again in 67. And, uh, you know, uh, America's sons and daughters were dying every time we cleared one of those places, right? So why don't we hold what we've cleared? And, and the, the premise behind your question uh, is, is to ask uh, um, well, if, we, if we withdraw precipitately and, and uh, uh, Iraq goes to hell in a handbasket and we have to, to come back in, um, we, we have paid an enormous price uh, over, over the past five years to get Iraq to the point it's at now. We, there are sunk costs involved, right? But uh, we are now, it, it is now possible to believe that we could have a favorable, a relatively favorable outcome here. That is an Iraq that is unitary, at peace with itself, uh, able to control what happens inside its borders, uh, able to protect itself against its neighbors, and yet not be a threat to its neighbors. And, and the, the reason we left so many forces, such a visible presence in Saudi Arabia, after Desert Storm is because Saddam Hussein remained a threat to the region, right, based, based on his, both his military potential and his demonstrated, uh, if, if somewhat suicidal, uh, propensity to attack his neighbors. Right. We have the opportunity now to build an Iraq that, that, that no longer presents that threat. And, and so an Iraq like that could allow us to significantly reduce our military footprint in the Middle East. Well, Iraq could be a counterbalance to Iran rather than having to have American forces in the region be a counterbalance to Iran. And I believe that, that accomplishing those objectives is now in sight at a bearable cost. It is going to take a significant additional period of time, but we can do it intelligently. We can draw down American combat forces, increase American advisory forces, maintain some, some ISR and some air power uh, in the region to back them up, and, and we can shway, shway, slowly, slowly, uh, put Iraq on, on a path to, to independent stability. Did you want to comment? Yeah, I think there is an enormous cost to drawing out too fast. Like all wicked problems, you can't go back to where you were. I mean, it's not like you pull out and it doesn't go well and you go back to where you were. That's like saying something stupid to your wife and thinking that you're ever going to forget that. Um, so you're in that position. If we pull out, what happens is the people who are helping us get killed. If there's a resurgence, they get killed. When you come back in, they're dead and everybody else has the message. Those guys will leave you. And we did this repeatedly in Western Anbar when it was the, what do we call it, economy of force province. We got a lot of good Iraqis killed. And when we finally came to stay, it was a year before anybody trusted us. Now, you pull out now, it would take an enormous time to get the trust back. Just, just, just briefly, and we did the same thing in Mosul. Right. We thought we had it pacified. We pulled forces out too far. All the people who cooperated with us got killed, and that's one of the reasons why AQI has been able to establish a foothold there now. Let me make a, a – you raised one point which I think is very important. To think that Iraq is going to help us contain Iran is simply not true. You remember that Maliki and all those people, you know, were in Iran. 
And this idea that somehow or another this is what we're fighting for is simply not true. Iraq and Iran are going to get along, okay? And in fact, one of the things that held up the negotiations in the Status of Forces Agreement was this airspace thing, because they don't want to use us as, uh, you know, allow us to, 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 to attack Iran. So I think whatever else you may think will happen there, this is simply not going to occur. And if that's your goal and that's why you're staying, that's really, uh, I mean, whistling in the dark. So I think it's very important to get that out on the table. I'd also mention the fact, yes, there's a hell of a lot of problems that we caused. Okay, they, we caused these problems. They did not exist before we went in. And so the idea that somehow or another that these are problems we're trying to know, we caused them. And I agree we have a moral responsibility to try and do it. But if you were to leave now, okay, if you were to, we're not going to leave with this administration, start in January 2009 and get out, you know, sometime in 2010, that would have meant you're there seven years. So I think that's long enough for them to get their, to get their act, act, act together. And if you could guarantee me that if we would stay at some point, you wouldn't have problems when we leave, I, 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 you know, then I think we have a different uh, subject. But I don't think anybody can guarantee that no matter how long you stay, that when you leave at whatever this date is, everything is going to be, uh, everything is going to be fine. I think you're right about Iran. I do not I think Iraq will serve as a counterfunction. I'm not sure we need much of a counterweight to, to Iran. It's not projecting power. The nuclear weapon question is the one big question, but Iran doesn't help or hurt as much on that. As far as timeline, seven years is very, very short for an insurgency. These things are measured in decades. One of the reasons the Bush administration might have wanted to think a little bit before it went in is they are measured in decades. The Chinese fought for 27 years, the uh, Vietnamese for 30, the Palestinians have been, been at it since 1968. For the cavalrymen in the room, that's 40 years. Um, so we're to think seven years is a long time is the, our problem with insurgencies is that we don't understand the timelines of these critters. Now, that does make it important we draw down because the U.S. Army can't sustain this for long periods of time, but it's got to be a carefully thought through withdrawal. I mean, taking the five brigades out has been an enormous relief on the strain. Uh, two or three more brigades would be a help. The plus-up in troops is a help. That's all coming. Uh, I think the Marine Corps is going to achieve its plus-up to 202 by uh, 2010, so we'll be about two years ahead of schedule. So they can start using some of the Marine forces as a relief on the stress, too. Now, I was talking about not I'm talking about the moral obligation. People say you just can't break it and walk away, and I would say that that would be seven years. But remember, if we were told this thing was, we wouldn't have gone in. We were not told this. The American people would not have supported this if you were told when you're going in, you're going to have to stay. Well, I don't think anybody here has said it's a good idea. I mean, we went into uh, to Iraq based on a vision that democracy would work. And the problem with a vision is a fine line between vision and hallucination. <laughs> All right. So we try to get you the last time here. We okay. I'm Al Richmond, former State Department. I want to first congratulate Larry Corp for bringing two vivid discussions who didn't quite agree with him <laughs> to the panel. Uh, and I want to ask the, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Nagel, uh, why is Larry Corp has indicated a, a more or less specific timeline of a withdrawal between eight to ten or a year and a half? What do you envision as, as a withdrawal in that, in that period of time, a year, year and a half, with forces diminishing and being replaced by an advisory concept? 
do you envision a reduction of any significance between now and a year, year and a half of U.S. For forces in Iraq? Absolutely. The, uh, um, assuming continued progress in, in the uh, capability and capacity of Iraqi security forces, which I think is a reasonable assumption, uh, uh, assuming um, the, the continued degradation of AQI's capabilities in Iraq, which, uh, again, I know the people fighting them right now, I think that's a reasonable assumption. Uh, assuming uh, political progress, and, and I, I, I take TX's point, it's the agreement to have uh, elections is important, but so is the redistribution of power that follows, and, and Iraq is hungry, particularly the Sunnis are hungry for that redistribution of power. So assuming that those happen uh, sometime in the next six months or so, um, if, if we assume all of those things, I see a continued uh, ability to withdraw brigades and replace them with uh, essentially with battalion task forces um, at the rate of, um, goodness, by, by 2010, I think we could be at half what we're at now, so uh, 70,000 Americans, and by the end of the next president's first term, I think we could be perhaps at half of that, at 35,000, right, and, and uh, w with a continuing, um, a, a continuing slow withdrawal with American forces um, increasingly invisible on, on uh, air bases out, out in the deserts, out of the cities. I think we'll be pulling out of the cities before then, except for very small American advisory teams, uh, provincial government support teams, and uh, uh, advisory teams increasingly at the higher levels as the battalions become better able, battalions and brigades become better able to uh, do things themselves. And, and on that glide slope, I think we relieve the stress on the Army uh, I think we're able to devote significant additional resources to Afghanistan, and I, I think we guarantee a return on our investment in an Iraq that is stable, uh, not a threat to its neighbors, and uh, I, I, fair to, I, I fail to see how uh, um, I, I fail to see that that, that uh, Iraq uh, uh, cannot be considered a, a counterweight to Iran in the region. So I, I think that it serves that purpose as well. Yes, right here. Hi, I'm Carolyn Poplin. I work here. Um, my question is about uh, civil war and insurgency. Uh, we went to Iraq to uh, overthrow Saddam and get rid of the um, uh, al-Qaeda that wasn't there. Um, but we don't want to be caught in the middle of a civil war. We nearly were, and I guess you're assuming that we had something to do with kind of tamping it down. But we're in a terrible position if, there's a, if we're still there and they decide to go to civil war uh, because each one will think we're on the other side and we'll end up fighting both of them. I mean, it would be like being in the Lebanese civil war. That would have been a mess. Unfortunately, um, Reagan was smart enough to get us out before that happened. The question about insurgency is there's now an insurgency in Afghanistan and we don't have enough people to protect uh, the villagers all along the southern edge of Afghanistan so that if they side with us and then we are forced to pull back, in fact, the Taliban does come in and, and cut people's throats, um, and we, we're, we're kind of stuck. We don't, there aren't enough people, and as you say, it takes 20 years, and we're, we've been in there for seven, and we're behind. So it seems to me we're fighting a war or we're, we're preventing a war that we have no part of in Iraq, and we're not uh, doing the thing that we need to do to take care of the insurgency, which is the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan. 
to answer this, uh, also, any final comments you want to make? We've got about five minutes, so anything you want to say? Uh, John, do you want to jump in? Um, going to war is, is, is an incredibly important decision. Wars don't end the way you think they're going to. When you roll the iron dice, bad things generally happen, right? And, and we are where we are in Iraq. I believe that an objective assessment of the situation on the ground of American national interests, uh, based on what happens in Iraq and in the region, uh, argue for a continuing American commitment to prevent the reemergence of a civil war. We were in the middle of a civil war in Iraq in 2006. We're not there now, frankly, because of, uh, because of some, some brave efforts by Iraqis and some very brave efforts by Americans. Uh, and, and some of both of them perished uh, in that fight. We can, I believe, I believe we now have the proper strategy in Iraq. I believe we have a clear path forward, and I believe that we can accomplish, we can make the best of a bad situation uh, at a bearable cost by uh, increasingly focusing on an advisory effort in Iraq, and that will free up additional resources for Afghanistan. You're absolutely right. We don't have enough Army and Marine Corps for the wars we're fighting today. We can't fix that today. We're working on it. But we've made a great deal of progress, I would argue, in both wars. Uh, at least in Iraq, we've made progress. In Afghanistan, we understand now what we need to do so there's a way ahead in both. And I'm uh, reasonably optimistic so long as we uh, remain committed to the people who have given so much in support of us. John, would you give priority to Iraq over Afghanistan if you, if you don't have enough troops? I would, give, uh, I would give priority for clearing forces to Afghanistan and for holding and building forces to Iraq. See, I'm going to come out a little bit differently. The reason, you're absolutely right, we don't want to be in a civil war in Iraq. The, and if it was civil war in other places where we didn't care, then we'd stay out. But we started a fight in the middle of the economic heart of the world, not our economy, the global economy. Until we come up with alternate energy sources, we decided that it would be a great idea to start a fight in the middle of that. We're stuck with that. Okay. We, I would prioritize Iraq well ahead of Afghanistan. Now, somehow Afghanistan has become the good war. What the hell is our strategic interest there? The other problem is we talk about Afghanistan in isolation. The real question in Afghanistan is Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the Pashtun tribes in between. The insurgency is not Taliban-based. The insurgency is Pashtun-based, and not all Pashtun tribes. I mean, this place is so complex that the British, when they ran it, as an officer, you got a little, not a little booklet, a thick booklet that listed all the tribes, sub-tribes, key leaders, who killed whose grandmother four generations ago, and therefore you got to keep an eye on them, those sorts of things. We're wandered into that with no idea what we're doing, but we had a reason to go there. Now we are taking actions in Afghanistan to preserve our position in Afghanistan that are destabilizing Pakistan. What the hell is the sense of that? We need a strategy. Before we put more troops in Afghanistan, we need a regional strategy that thinks through what we are trying to achieve. Afghanistan is not the good war in Iraq, the bad war. They're both wars that we're in, and we've got ourselves in that position. We need a step back and take a strategic analysis. The one indisputable fact is Iraq is the part of the world where all the oil is. Afghanistan, we went there to get rid of al-Qaeda. Well, we did. They all moved to Pakistan. So that's a different strategic problem, but we've got to think it through. 
Well, let me say I, I appreciate uh, our Lieutenant Colonel Noggle and Colonel Homs getting us to think through these things. I thank you all for uh, uh, coming today. And I want to, in conclusion, I want to thank the people who make this possible, who do all of the work here, uh, Susie Ermeling, uh, Alex Pryor, Tyler Hall, and Mar uh, Marlene Vasilik. Thank you all. Thank you all for coming, and we hope we can see you again.